Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our study of his word this morning. Father, uh, would you help us to hear your word uh, to with eyes of faith, see even in our own lives and certainly on the pages of history, your kind intention, your mercy and grace in your hidden hand, moving all things for our good in your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It was a bold plan that had gone very, very bad. 1940 in May, beginning of World War II, uh, the British had undertaken a very courageous thing. Uh, they sent a 200,000 strong army to the mainland Europe to try and reinforce their allies against what looked like the inevitable advance of Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. And unfortunately, their gallantry was met with a stinging set of defeats. Uh, they lost important battles. They weren't advancing. They were retreating. And pretty soon, their supply lines were cut off, and they knew they needed to find some way off the continent. Uh, they found themselves with just one town left between them and utter uh, annihilation. They were holed up in the French port city of Dunkirk. Uh, but unfortunately, the Germans had their guns trained on all the boats that came trying to evacuate the troops, which meant there was little prospect that any of them would get out alive. It was all getting so bad that the Prime Minister of England was preparing a speech to be delivered to the people to let them know that the British Expeditionary Force was lost and with no hope of being rescued. But then a small seemingly insignificant circumstance occurred that changed history in the direction it went. Uh, one morning, an unexpected thick fog encompassed the entire city and port of Dunkirk. It was thick enough that the normally aggressive generals of the Germans decided, we won't start our bombardment from the air and train our guns on them today. We'll just wait for the fog, fog to clear. After all, they're not going anywhere. But that opening provided a chance for a bold rescue plan. Uh, it turned out that the fog had also brought with it unnaturally calm seas. And so military vessels and even 800 civilians in their private boats were able to come back and forth, back and forth, evacuating almost all of the 300,000 soldiers in just a few days. It was all so miraculous that it is often called the miracle of Dunkirk. History often turns on moments like that, doesn't it? Some bold plans that people undertake and some mixed motives of people involved and seemingly small circumstances that are the difference between it going very well or very, very poorly. Uh, our passage in Esther is no exception to this. It shows us three different people, each with mixed motives in their hearts, each with very bold plans to try and get something done. And yet behind them, the unseen hand of an invisible God, moving all things toward his desired end. Uh, we'll move through the passage, looking at each of these people with mixed motives and a big plan in turn. First, we'll look at Mordecai. See his mixture of grief and gamesmanship. A second, we'll look at Esther and her mixture of fear and faith. And finally, we'll look at no good, rotten, evil Haman and his mixture of fury and folly. 
Uh, in all of this, we'll have this big takeaway that even in our bold plans and mixed motives, all that we do serves the purpose of the invisible God. Let's begin in that first section looking at Mordecai and his mixture of grief and gamesmanship. If you weren't with us last week, the story left off in a dark, desperate spot for the Jews living in the Persian Empire. Uh, at this point, they had been living in exile for quite some time. Some of them had gone back to Jerusalem, but they all had this one thing in common. They were all set to be executed in 11 months' time. Uh, that's the do doing of one man, a powerful, the second most powerful guy in the Persian Empire, went by the name of Haman. He had managed to talk King Ahasuerus into issuing a decree to murder each and every Jew. And the scene last time ended with Jews all over the empire in dismay and confusion, while Haman and King Ahasuerus kicked back and enjoyed drinking the night away in their haughty pride. Well, that's the dark moment where our scene begins. And we, the spotlight turns to one of our main characters in the story, Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai is thrown into grief at hearing this news. Uh, he must have heard it like everyone else out in the public square, but apparently Mordecai has access to insider information, presumably through that official position he has in the king's gate, because he's able to find out the specifics of the plan, even the things that weren't made public. And the results of it would be enough to make anyone's heart tremble. Everyone you knew and loved all of the people of your heritage, all to be exterminated in less than a year. So Mordecai, like those, the rest of the Jews in Susa, finds themselves in a time of lament. They tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth, they weep, they wail, they, they roll around in ashes, all to show their dismay and their grief. And yet there's something else going on with Mordecai himself. Because Mordecai's display of grief is odd, the closer you look at it. Uh, we're told he does it at the king's gate. He's not allowed to go inside wearing sackcloth, so he gets as close as he can, right at the entrance, right at the front step. And he's right there, weeping and wailing as loud as he can, making sure everyone knows exactly what he's feeling. And I think this is the beginnings of us seeing that Mordecai is a man with a plan. His plan is to make a scene, to be seen doing something very unseemly. That is an open display of grief in the halls of power itself. Now, why would he do that? Well, that's where the second part of his plan comes in. He, he was trying to get attention, not, but not just anyone's attention. He was trying to get the attention of Queen Esther. In verse 4, we find out that his plan works. Esther gets word through her servants of Mordecai's location and his horrible dress and his weeping and wailing and making a scene. Initially, she seems just concerned that he doesn't have the right clothes to get inside the palace. So she sends him a royal clothes befitting of his station. But that's not the point. Mordecai is not here because he doesn't have a good enough wardrobe. Uh, he is trying to accomplish something. So he sends back word to West Esther, I will not accept your gift. And then Esther sends back another message asking, okay, then why are you here? And that's what moves the narrative forward. 
uh, Mordecai reveals by way of messengers to Esther the plot of Haman and the plight of the Jews and all of the details he's uncovered, including the official documents that somehow he got a hold of. He sends all of that to Esther along with what he's really after. That is a command to her. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Uh, This was Mordecai's grand plan, to get a hold of Esther with his very public display of grief and to command her to go and beg on behalf of her people before the king. Now, before we move on to Esther's response, we need to pause because there is something even in the telling of this story where the silence is deafening. Uh, We are seen here Mordecai weeping and wailing, wearing sackcloth and ashes, and we see the uh, Jews throughout all of Susa doing the exact same thing. And yet, in it all, there's something missing. Uh, See if you catch what it is. Uh, Joel chapter 2, 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Sounds pretty familiar so far, right? And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Skip down to verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? What is it that's missing from the account of Mordecai's grand plan? Well, it is the basic spiritual impulse to pray. Uh, God's people have been off in exile because of their disobedience, far away from the promised land. Some of them have gone back, but many of them have adapted to living in the world and are starting to look a lot like it. Now, it could just be part of the narrative style of the book, but I think probably We are supposed to draw the conclusion that God's people, even when faced with utter destruction, don't even remember that they are to call on the name of the Lord, to repent and pray first and foremost. Uh, There's lots of bravery, lots of bold plans, but no one, as we're told, stops and gets down on their knees and just pleads to the courts of heaven for help. I think this is the first application we should draw from this passage. When darkness and despair come and surround us, when we find ourselves in danger or difficulty, what should be our first reaction? Shouldn't it be to pray? Uh, Kids, we sang a song that you know well, uh, Jesus Strong and Kind. It's got that one line in it. Uh, Jesus says that when I fear, what are you supposed to do? I should run to him. What does that mean? Do you actually run to Jesus' body here on earth? No. You pray. 
Jesus wants us to run to him with our concerns and our fears when life gets difficult and dark. Of course, it's not just kids that need this lesson, right? Uh, all of us do. Our first spiritual impulse when danger and darkness and despair approach us must be to pray. And we have good reason to pray. We know that the Lord welcomes us to pray, to come to Him with all the things that concern us, knowing He cares for us. And very often, He even, in His mercy, answers our prayers and rescues us out of all of our trouble. Mordecai shows us a mixture of grief and gamesmanship, but I hope we learn the lesson to be a people that pray. Second portrait turns to Queen Esther herself, and there we see a mixture of fear and faith. Now, Esther finds herself in an interesting position. Uh, she has been a survivor for quite some time now. Uh, remember, she was an orphan girl that got swept up in King Ahasuerus's unseemly gathering of virgins for himself. But somehow or the other, she ended up as queen of the entire empire. But do you remember the advice Mordecai gave her? He commanded her, don't let anyone know you're a Hebrew. Keep your heritage a secret. Because a Persian palace is a dangerous place for people like us. Well, over the years, Esther seems to have learned that lesson well. She has figured out how to survive. And the first thing that you need to learn to do is keep your head down, keep in the shadows, and make sure no one finds out your secret. Uh, initially, she responds to uh, Mordecai's command to her to go and plead before the king with two very understandable, reasonable-sounding fears. Uh, the first is that there's a law that you don't do such things. Uh, we have records from this outside the Bible as well, that Persian kings, unless you were invited, you did not just waltz into the palace, did not go into the throne room to try and meet the king. If you did so, the penalty was death. That is, unless the very unpredictable, very bloodthirsty king were to decide to be having a good day to show you mercy, and if he did so, he would extend his golden scepter as a show of that. Esther has good reason to think that perhaps she would not receive a warm welcome. This is the second good reason why she's not going to do what Mordecai says. It's because she has not been invited to go hang out with the king for over a month. Sounds like the home fires might have started burning very low by this point, if you catch my drift. So Esther doesn't seem to think that Mordecai's plan is going to result in anything except with her losing her head. But Mordecai knows that there's something deeper going on, which is why in 12 through 14, he challenges her to her core, challenging her to come out of the shadows to reveal what she truly is and to use her royal position to plead for her people. Now, Mordecai still does so in a kind of brazen way. He threatens her not so subtly. Uh, he tells her, don't think that you're going to be safe in the palace. Uh, one way or the other, people are going to find out you're a Jew and you're going to be in the bat, you're going to go down with the rest of us. Now, he doesn't say exactly how that'll happen. I, I think the implication is he might want her to think that he would be the one to reveal this fact. Regardless of how it's going to happen, though, his point is, you're not safe 
so you can't keep trying to hide in the shadows. He also tells her that there's an opportunity that she might miss. Somehow or the other, relief and help is going to come for God's people. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but it will. The only question is whether Esther will be a part of it or not. And if she chooses not to, well, then she can expect her father's family, that's everyone she cares about, to suffer the consequences. Again, a not-so-subtle threat, although it's not clear how Mordecai thinks all that's going to happen. But then, finally, he appeals to her position as mainly having a bigger purpose than Esther might imagine. Read with me in verse 14, undoubtedly the most famous set of words in the whole book. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Have you considered Esther? Maybe, just maybe. There's something bigger going on than you just remaining safe. Might you have a duty to step out, maybe at risk of dying, but to step out to try and save all of the people of your heritage, to save all the Jews? That's Mordecai's very direct challenge to Esther. And frankly, I think it's the moment where the story itself hinges and it becomes clear that Esther is, in fact, the main uh, hero of the, the heroine of the story. Up until now, she's just been a scared girl. We've only been told of things that happened to her. But from this point forward, she's going to show a tremendous amount of courage, I would argue even faith. And in fact, she's going to be the one initiating the action She's going to be the one that things are happening because of. Her response shows this transformation taking place. Uh, she tells Mordecai she's going to need some help. She asks him to gather up all the Jews in Susa and to have three days of fasting. Again, there's no mention of prayer, but I have to think, perhaps Esther hopes that this fasting will in some way make the God of the Jews, God of the Hebrews, the God of her people, Look down on kind, with mercy and kindness upon her. Then she tells Mordecai, if I die, I die. Uh, she's willing to try even if it mean, means her death. And I think in so doing, brave Queen Esther gives us a beautiful picture by way of a shadow of beautiful King Jesus. Uh, not only who's willing to risk the potential for death, but who willingly gives up his life to save each and every one of his people. Who doesn't shrink back, who doesn't need to be threatened in order to go accomplish his mission, but who gives up his life of his own accord so that sinners of all types might be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the core message of the Bible you need to understand. The Bible tells us there's no greater love than someone who would willingly die for the benefit of a friend. The Bible tells us that there's a, one person who lives up to that billing more so than all the rest. His name is Jesus Christ. Uh, he did that by dying on a Roman cross, bearing the penalty our sins deserved, so that people that are sinners of all types could come close and have their sins forgiven and know that God was forever their friend. Uh, friend, all you need to do in order to know God and that sort of love and that sort of friendship is to repent of your sins 
and to trust Jesus by faith to save you. If you have questions about how to do that after the service, I'll be available. I'd love to help fill in some of the blanks for you before you leave. Uh, Esther gives us a beautiful picture of the king that was willing to die to save his people. But in so doing, she also puts into motion a series of events that are undoubtedly a brilliant and bold plan. Oh, people are already taking orders from her. Verse 17 has Mordecai carrying out her commands instead of the other way around. And in chapter 5, we see more people doing the same. She goes into the, uh, into the palace. She finds just the right spot, so she'll catch the eye of King Ahasuerus. And don't, then don't miss the drama of the moment. Uh, there's a moment where Ahasuerus sees her, and her plan can either result in her uh, very quick death or might continue proceeding based on how he responds. Uh, how would you like for your very life and the fate of your entire people to hang on the reaction of an unpredictable, bloodthirsty king like him? And yet, as happened before, Ahasuerus responds favorably to her. He told that she finds favor in his eyes. He holds up the scepter and lets her come close. And even, it gets even better from there. She touches the golden scepter, and Ahasuerus seems to be really happy to see her. He's like, hey, honey, good to see you. What can I do for you today? Well, ask anything you want of your hubby. Uh, anything you want at all, up to half my kingdom. Now, that's probably an overstatement. I have to think Esther knows better than to take those words literally. Um, and she seems at this point to really understand the way the palace works well because she shows a great degree of patience and careful planning in the way this all unfolds. So she doesn't ask outright what she needs yet. She doesn't say anything about the Jews and their plight. Instead, she tells her beloved husband, would you just do me the favor, you and your most trusted lieutenant, Haman, would you come to a feast that I've been preparing for you? Well, she, clearly, she knows King Ahasuerus well, because if there's one thing he loves, is a good feast. So he calls out, and once again, the irony is starting to build. He tells everyone, do exactly as Esther said. She's the one calling the shots, you see. And they call Haman, and both Ahasuerus and Haman come to the party, and it all goes splendidly. They eat and of, more importantly, they drink their fill. And at the end of it, King Ahasuerus clearly is very happy because he reiterates his offer to her. Esther, ask anything you want, baby. Anything at all. Up to half my kingdom. But once again, Esther is more patient. And her plan is much wiser than you would think. Uh, she tells them, tell you what. Come to my party that I'll throw for you guys tomorrow. And then you can grant the wish that I'll finally reveal. Well, that's too intriguing for a Hazarus or Haman to pass up. So they leave on their way with Esther having laid the groundwork for her patient plan. Now, I think one of the lines of application that we are undoubtedly to take from this is to see Esther as a surprising sort of example. Uh, I have to admit, when I came to the text, I didn't think she would be a surprising example. Uh, do you have this tendency? I, I do when I read the Bible. I kind of paper over the flaws and the failures 
of biblical heroes and heroines throughout Scripture. I remember enough about Moses and Abraham and Esther to remember they did great things for God. They, they did great works of faith. But somehow in the distance from having read them in a while, I forget a lot of the, the shortcomings they have. The times where they were manipulative or gossips. Even the times where they outright disobeyed. I think Esther shows us a wonderful example of how God uses flawed people with mixed motives, and often he uses them for things far bigger than they ever could have imagined. She starts off fearful, and yet by some seemingly random circumstances and some not so subtle direct challenges, she ends up growing into this woman of faith that we've all looked up to for so long. Of course, we need to ask that same question of ourselves. Might God have some thing or set of things that he has purposed for us to do in our lives, in the time and place that we live? Might you have been raised up for such a time as this with your neighbors or your coworkers or your friends or your family or the random person you're going to bump into this week? Might there be some bigger purpose to your life? Maybe only that you see the broad outlines of, but that is, gives meaning to all the small decisions. Well, sometimes we live with that thought. Well, God surely couldn't use a person like me. But is it any surprise to the Lord that you're socially awkward in conversations with people you just met? Or that you're not that great at memorizing Scripture or recalling it in the moment? trying to have a spiritual conversation, or even that long list of failures that the enemy keeps reminding you about. Is any of that a shock to God? Or might all of it be part of his grand plan to accomplish good and to bring himself glory? Uh, brothers and sisters, would you be willing to be used, whatever station and place and time the Lord has you in, because rest assured, he has prepared works for you long before you came around. And one day, we'll see his plan come together off into eternity. Esther shows us a plan from a woman that moves from fear to faith. But there is one final portrait with one more bold plan to look at, and that is Haman, with a mixture of fury and folly in his heart. Uh, Haman leaves the feast having a really good day. He has had his fill of food and drink, and mo most of all, of honor. I mean, what a prestigious thing to be invited to the most exclusive of all parties, one thrown by beautiful Queen Esther himself, herself, one fit only for the king and his most trusted lieutenant, Haman. But pretty quickly on his way home, Haman has a dark rain cloud hovering over his head because he has the misfortune of catching in his eye the sight of Mordecai. Uh, back in his royal office, back inside the king's gate, gone are the sackcloth and ashes. He is now a royal figure again. And most troublingly, he's not at all impressed with Haman and he's certainly not afraid of him. Haman is so angry that he has half a mind to go over and wring his neck 
But we're told he restrains himself and he goes home. It's the only virtuous thing he does in the whole story. When he goes home, he decides he wants to make himself feel better. So he surrounds himself with those who know him best and love him most. His friends and, of course, his adoring wife, Zeresh. Uh, And he decides, you know what will make me feel better? I will simply recount how great of a man I am to this, my adoring friends and family. And it's really embarrassing to listen in to someone being so brazenly boastful. Uh, My dear wife, do you remember just how big the pile of gold I have is? Uh, Do you remember how many sons I have scattered all over the kingdom? Does anyone remember how high of an office I sit in? I'm a very important guy. I mean, I'm so important, in fact, that I got invited to this very, uh, very selective, super official party by Queen Esther. But there's one thing that's making my blood boil. It's Mordecai. And that's when his beautiful wife and, her, and his friends give him a horrible suggestion. Say, well, why don't you do this, Haman? Uh, why don't you build a 75-foot wooden pole, a gallow, and before you go to the next party tomorrow, why don't you hang Mordecai on it? And then your heart will feel free and clear, and you'll be able to enjoy the feast. I have to say, his wife sounds like a lovely woman. And, and of course, Haman thinks this is a grand idea. And so that very night, he has the orders put, put up the big pole, and tomorrow we'll very publicly put an end to Mordecai once and for all. I'll just talk King Ahasuerus into it again. Now, what are we to take from the evil, boastful pride of our villain, Haman? Well, of course, Haman is not alone in the prideful boasting of powerful people. Um, Even in the day we live in, don't those in the seats of power still find ways to list off their long list of accomplishments and how great people they are? Uh, In fact, they have social media to make all of us sit through their diatribes about it, right? It's still uncomfortable. And aren't they just as fragile as he was? I mean, maybe they don't use 75-foot gallows to get back at their enemies, but they certainly go out of their way to make sure people know you don't cross me by using their power to get back at their enemies. Well, it's easy to look at powerful guys like Haman and to find yourself with dark thoughts. I mean, it seems like they have all the power. It seems like they're in the driver's seat. They're the ones determining what happens in the world and what might happen to me and my family. But that's where remembering that even the mixed motives of evil men are part of the grand plan of the invisible God, Uh, working for our good and his glory is a great balm to our souls. Uh, Even the machinations of Haman are going to turn out to be part of how God's people are saved. And Haman will find that out, getting a view from the gallows that he really isn't going to like at that party in the chapters ahead. Uh, Certainly, we can learn that in our day, that no no matter how deadly the foes may seem or how dark their plots may uh, become, that we can trust, like Psalm 1 says, that the wicked won't prosper, that in a moment that they don't see coming, they'll be blown away like chaff before the wind 
of God's providential judgment. I told you about the miracle of Dunkirk at the beginning of the sermon. Uh, In fact, there was a very popular movie that retold pretty capably most of the events of it. Uh, But like many retellings of it, there's one aspect of the story that was left out. You see, there's one way to talk about the miracle of Dunkirk and the events there. Uh, That is that it was just a small happenstance of weather, fog that just happened to roll in at the right time. Or you could say it's a, a, a case where the mixed motivations of people and brave actions led to those people being rescued. Hitler and his generals being passive rather than aggressive. Or even those brave civilians in the boats going across to save the large army. But there was another thing that happened. Uh, While the prime minister was preparing to deliver the bad news to the public, King Charles VI decided to do something else. He called for a national day of prayer on the Sunday coming up. On that Sunday, there was a record turnout in churches. You can actually go online and see photos of long lines of people waiting to get their turn to come into church to pray and plead that God would show mercy to the soldiers. So was it a seemingly small circumstance that saved those people? Was it the mixed motives of Hitler and his generals? Was it the bold plan of the military and the civilian boats? Or might there be the fingerprints of a hidden hand silently guiding and directing all the events of history in our lives to his good and glorious end? Uh, Brothers and sisters, you can trust that sort of God. And with eyes of faith, you can learn to see his fingerprints on the pages of history and even in your own life. Let's pray as we continue to worship the one and only holy God of heaven. Oh, Father, we bow before you as the one who has proved himself o'er and over. Uh, We thank you for being the sword of God that though you are unseen, that is never uninvolved, who turns the heart of the king left or right like a waterway, whichever way you please so that you can bring about your good intention for our lives and for this world. And Father, we ask you to help us to act in faith in the times and places and circumstances in which you've given us to live. Uh, Would you help us to see the opportunities you've given us to be bold uh, bold for the gospel and to stand for you in your kingdom and to do acts in bold faith knowing that you are surely using flawed people like us for our good and your glory. So, Father, now would you help us now as we sing? Would you even bolster our faith as we sing of you, the God who can be trusted in all things? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.